0: Hi there, welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I'm not going to have you stand and uh, read all the verses because there's a whole bunch of them and we will cover all them anyway. So in the interest of time and you getting to beat the Baptist to the Cracker Barrel, <laughs> we're just going to pray and start. <clears throat> Father, we do we do thank you that we have been able to come and meet here together. It seems like it has just been so long. And it's to me, it's so much harder uh, not being able to meet with my brothers and sisters and, and singing your praises and learning from your word. So we are thankful that we could come together today. And we're thankful for all that, that you've done for us already. Now we pray, Lord, that your word... Uh, would do the thing that only your word can do, and that is to transform us and to make us a little bit more like your son. For that is the desire of our hearts. And Lord, if that is not the desire of any heart in here, we pray that today you would make it that desire. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. amen. The Chinese have a proverb to define the word fool. Outside noisy, inside empty. Unfortunately, that's how King Saul, who they have asked for, is going to turn out. By his very own admission, at the end of his life, he will sum up what could have been his epitaph. When in chapter 26, he says, I have played the fool. Now, chapter 9 begins the second major section in the book of First Samuel. The first section dealt with Samuel, but now the emphasis will shift to Saul. Saul is one of those strange individuals that we encounter in the word of God. Like Balaam, it's very difficult to interpret him. Both in the Old and the New Testaments, there are several strange characters who move across the pages of Scripture in almost semi-darkness. They come out, as it were, into the light, but like the groundhog, They see their shadows and move back into the darkness once again. Look at first one with me. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Ephiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than Than any of the other people. One commentator I read said this There is no indication at this stage of when the events about to be told occurred in relation to the momentous meeting between Samuel and the elders of Israel at Ramah, encountered in chapter 8. Certainly, we begin reading chapter 9 aware of the questions that were raised at Ramah. Will Israel be given a king? Who will it be? What will this mean for Israel? However, we must be patient. The questions will only be answered through the complex story that begins, There was a man. Now, chapter 9 begins almost abruptly, just like that. There was a man. This gives the impression that a new story is about to start right here. Just as the story of Samuel had begun with the words, There was a certain man in 1 Samuel 1.1. So this new fresh storyline also begins with the words, there was a man. Now, the man spoken of is Saul's father, Kish, who was apparently a very wealthy and powerful man in the region. We are then introduced to the sons of Kish, a young man by the name of Saul. Physically, Saul was tall, good-looking, and strong, the kind of person that the people would admire. And believe it or not, being tall was something to be commended in a future king at that time, which I don't understand. I mean, they're looking for someone to run the country, not play power forward for their basketball team. But anyway, that's just something I'm having to work through with my therapist. What is interesting is it literally says that Saul was a head taller than everyone else. But tragically, we will see that in chapter 31, that very head will be removed from his body by the Philistines. But at this time, Saul was well built and appeared every inch a king. Saul was literally tall, dark, and handsome. Now, I wonder if his good looks aren't also a part of his problem later on. Looking like Brad Pitt has its disadvantages. I know personally the problems that it has caused me (laughs) over the years. It's not polite to laugh. You're probably thinking, I don't know about Brad Pitt. Maybe armpit, though. But I have to wonder if maybe King Saul put the crown on in front of the mirror one too many times. Like the fawns in happy days. For you younger people, the fawns was Brad Pitt with greasy hair. But can't you just see him preening in front of the mirror, asking himself, which is my good side? And then coming to the conclusion, hey baby, you don't have a bad side. Verse three, please. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's brother, were lost, and Kish said to his sons, or to his son Saul, "'Please take one of the servants with you, and arise, go and look for the donkeys.' So he passed through the mountains of Ephraim and through the land of Shalatia, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Shalim, and they were not there. Then he passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they had come to the land of Zuph, Saul said to a servant who was with him, "'Come, let us return, lest my father cease carrying about the donkeys.' ...and becomes worried about us. The story of Saul begins on a remarkably ordinary note. It simply reads, Now the dockings of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. We know that his father was wealthy because it says he lost not a donkey, but donkeys. In those days, that was like saying the guy had a fleet of pickup trucks... ...because that essentially was what a donkey was... But it was a pickup that had a brain that was stubborn and sometimes prone to wander. But think about it. The future of Israel was in the balance. A political revolution was simmering. But we are taken out into the country to a family who had lost some donkeys. That's about as far from the crisis of chapter 8 than you can imagine. Notice the focus on the father-son relationship. Our study in 1 Samuel has been dominated by father-son relationships that have gone bad. Eli and his boys, and then Samuel and his sons. But now we see a son who gladly did his father's bidding. And as with most people, Saul initially had many good character traits that we can admire. He could have said, I have way more important things to do than to look for lost donkeys. Instead, he did as his father asked and was diligent in carrying out the task. Verses four and following reveal that he and his servant went throughout the hill country of Ephraim. They kept looking, but they could not find the animals. Now, this task may have seemed like a very insignificant event. Some animals are lost. And Saul goes to try and find them. Yet this insignificant event led to some very great things. And I think there is a principle here, and this is it. If you have some seemingly insignificant task to perform, do it and do it right. It may be the door to some other great responsibility and privilege, Every Christian can look back over their lives and see how God was at work in a series of incidents that at the time must have seemed very insignificant. But the Bible makes it very clear that who he was faithful in little is also faithful in much. Now, the mention of the land of Zuf in verse 5 is worth noting. Here is a subtle hint of where the story is leading. Ziph was none other than the great, great, great grandfather of Samuel. The land of Ziph was named after him and was apparently the region around Samuel's hometown. Saul had come to the territory of Samuel. Now, we might expect that that anticipated connection between the great prophet and this young man would soon become apparent. However, it is clear that Saul had no idea ...of what was about to happen. Now I think God caused the donkeys to wander... ...and Saul will not be able to find them... ...until he comes to Samuel's front door. Let me ask you... ...so far in our study... ...we have seen God controlling mice... heifers, ...and now we see him controlling donkeys. What does that mean? Simply this... ...God is sovereign... ...in every circumstance... In every event in our lives. Verse six, please. And he said to him, Look now, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way in which we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? And the servant answered Saul again and said, look, I have here at hand one-fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give that to the man of God to tell us our way. So Samuel's servant comes up with an idea. He tells Saul that there is a prophet who is an honorable man, and all that this prophet says will certainly come to pass. That's incidentally how you know a true prophet. His word is the word of God, and his character is such that he is held in honor. He is a man of orthodoxy, and he is a man of orthopraxy, which means he believes right, and he also lives right. The strange thing is, at one level, Saul continues to commit himself to us. Unlike the greedy, corrupt sons earlier in our story, he was not going to ask something for nothing. Alongside a favorable impression that we might be forming about this young man's character, we should also note for future reference that he was not the leader in this situation, but followed the word of another, in this case, his servant. But as I said earlier, many of the traits that we see in Saul are initially good. But we will also begin to see some attributes that are put there like little seedlings that in time are going to come up ugly and unfavorable. Saul is rich, well-composed, and good-looking. But we begin to see that Saul is also not really acquainted with the word of God. He does not know who Samuel is, even though his servant certainly does. That's like living in Princeton and not knowing who I am. (laughs) Just kidding. I don't know why I say stuff like that. Look at verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he spoke thus, Come, let us go to the seer. For he who is now called a prophet was formerly called a seer. Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. And they went up the hill to the city. They met some young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? And they answered them and said, Yes, there he is, just ahead of you. Hurry now, for today has come to the city, because there is a sacrifice of the people today on the high place. As soon as you come into the city, you will surely find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now, therefore, go up, for about this time you will find him. Now, verse 9 gives us a little background info. It tells us that a prophet used to be called a seer. He was called a seer because he could see supernaturally into the spiritual realm. So he was a seer. Not terribly original, I admit, but that's what they called him back then. And so the gods come upon a group of young women at a well. And so they ask for some directions. The question has been asked in the past why the people or the children of Israel spent 40 years wandering in the desert. One lady said it was because it was a man leading them, and he refused to ask for directions. Now, anyone familiar with biblical history will recall that there have been a number of occasions when an encounter with young women at a well turned out to be very significant. The stories of Isaac, Jacob, and Moses each include a scene like this that was a defining moment in each life. And so Saul asked the young ladies if the seer is around. And the girls answered, Well, yes, he is, you big, handsome hunk of a man. At least that's how I think it sounded. They then tell him that there is a feast scheduled that can't start until Samuel gets there to bless the food. Which is, by the way, the first mention of praying over a meal. Verse 14. So they went up to the city. As they were coming into the city, there was Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the Lord had told Samuel in his ear the day before Saul came, saying, Tomorrow about this time I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him commander over my people Israel, that he may save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have looked upon my people, because their cries come to me. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, There he is, the man of whom I spoke to you. This one shall reign over my people. Then Saul drew near to Samuel in the gate and said, Please tell me, where is the seer's house? The day previously Samuel had heard the Lord say, tomorrow a man is going to come, the one I've chosen to be the commander and the king of the nation. Now I find it interesting that the Lord whispered in Samuel's ear the day before this event took place, let him know what was going to lie ahead. In 1 Samuel 8:21, we read that Samuel heard all the words of the people and he then rehearsed them. In the ears of the Lord. What's the significance of that? Those who whisper in the ears of the Lord will hear the Lord whisper in their ears as well. I'm convinced that many times I don't hear what the Lord wants to say in my ear because I haven't first spoken in his ear. Samuel was a man who understood what it meant to pray without ceasing. As a result, the Lord whispered in his ear, telling him the man who would be king was on his way. Now, curiously, Samuel had warned them that if they were given the king that they had asked for, they would cry out because of that king. But he says, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But that situation had not yet come. The Lord had heard their cry and was sending them Saul. And even though Saul wasn't the perfect choice, the Lord will still use him to begin to save the people from the Philistines. That is the Old Testament version of Romans 8.28, where God will use all things and work them together for good for those who love him. Even when we blow it, that is how gracious God is to us this morning. It's almost as if God was saying, if you want a king, I'll give you one. And he'll be just the sort of king that you would choose if you were doing the choosing. There's nothing half-hearted about the way that God selects a king for them. This is as good of a king that they could hope for. Sadly, though, as we will see in the next few weeks, his performance will not match his image. But that's another story. And so here we see Saul face-to-face with the prophet Samuel, and he has no idea who he is. Saul's home was in Gibeah, which is only about five miles from Ramah where Samuel lived. And yet Saul did not even know what all Israel knew at that time, that there was a man of God named Samuel who lived in Ramah. How Saul could live so close to Israel's spiritual leader and not know him is a bit of a concern. Apparently, he hadn't attended the annual feast and wasn't greatly concerned with spiritual matters. Like many people today, he wasn't necessarily against religion, but he didn't want to make knowing the Lord a vital part of his life. Verse 19, please. And Samuel answered Saul and said, "'I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today.' And tomorrow I will let you go and will tell you all that is in your heart. But as for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not be anxious about them, for they have been found. And of whom is all the desire of Israel? Is it not on you and on on your father's house? And Saul answered and said, Am I not a Benjamite of the smallest of the tribes of Israel, and my family the least of all the families of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then do you speak like this to me? Samuel looks at Saul and informs him, I am the seer. It would be a memorable moment. The lives of these two men would be closely intertwined until their deaths. In fact, we will even see that Saul will attempt to call Samuel back from the grave in chapter 28, which we will get to in about ten years at the rate we are going. Don't you love how I included you in that, like it was somehow your fault also? I'm a man sorely in need of prayer. Samuel then tells Saul that the donkeys have been found. When I get to heaven, I want to see the DVD of that, just so I can see the look on Saul's face. This was something that had been made known to Samuel by direct revelation. And by the way, that is the only way in which God's purposes can be discerned in the events of this world. No one can deduce God's purpose merely by observing events, either historical or contemporary. Only when God reveals his purpose, as he did on this day for Samuel, and as he has done on a larger scale in the whole Bible, can any human know the purpose of God in human events. The important theological principle here is that we only understand the work of God because God has spoken to us. The journey that had begun as a search for lost donkeys had now become a search for the word of God. I think there's something very comforting here that is easy to miss in all that is going on in our story. We see here that God was concerned about the donkeys, That's why the Lord said through Samuel, don't be anxious about the donkeys. Later on, Paul will say in Philippians 4, 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Why would Paul tell us not to be anxious? Because we as a species have the proclivity to be anxious and full of worry. But those verses say that if we bathe any situation in continual prayer, God will give us a peace that we can't even understand. Connie and I are experiencing that right now. It doesn't say the problem will necessarily disappear but that we will have a supernatural calm in the midst of that problem. That teaches us this morning that God also cares about your donkeys or your problems or your anxieties. You see, like King Saul, we are also royalty. And like King Saul, there is something that is bigger going on than our lost donkeys. Realize this morning that whatever issue you face, Whatever donkeys you have lost, step back for a moment and let God speak to that issue. Understand that there is something far bigger going on here. He has a plan for your life, and it is bigger than your lost donkeys. If you're eating out this afternoon and someone asks you what the sermon was on, you can just tell them, don't worry about your donkeys. They might say, You go to Calvary Chapel, don't you? Another reason for this is when Saul hears this from Samuel and realizes there is no way he could have known this apart from the Lord, what it would do is it would give him confidence in the fact that this guy actually hears from God and what he says surely comes to pass. And so God is strengthening Saul's faith for the next bigger revelation that God is going to give him through Samuel And that is, you're going to be the next king. Look at verse 22 with me. Now Samuel took Saul and his servant and brought them into the hall and had them sit in the place of honor among those who were invited. There were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion which I gave you, which I said to you, set it apart. So the cook took the thigh with its upper part, or what we would call the shoulder today, and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, Here it is, what was kept back. It was set apart for you. Eat, for until this time it has been kept for you since I, had, since I said I invited the people. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Rather elaborate preparations had been made for this utterly bewildered guest of honor. This was the appointed hour. Choice food, normally set back for the priest, had been set aside for this point in time for the special guest. Verse 24 says, Saul ate with Samuel that day. And to think the whole day had started with just him looking for some lost donkeys. Which reminds us that God uses ordinary people and he calls them in the midst of the ordinary duties in life. God is in every part of our life if we are spiritually aware enough to realize it. Elizabeth Barrett Browning penned these famous lines, Earth's crammed with heaven, and every common bush afire with God, and only he who sees it takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pick blackberries. In closing. I don't want to read too much into this, but one of the prime pieces of beef at that time was the shoulder. It was a real honor to be given this portion. But there was a second piece of meat in the Bible that was also considered to be a real delicacy even above the shoulder. This was the finest portion that one could be given, and that was the breast. What is interesting, at least to me, is Saul was given the shoulder And not the breast. Why would I bring that out? Saul was given the shoulder. And we are told that he was head and shoulder above the rest of the nation in a physical sense. So maybe, just maybe, he wasn't given the breast because he truly didn't have a heart for God. Just something for you to think about and keep you up at night. Well, next week, we'll be taking a break from our study as we will be blessed to have the incomparable Norman Arrington with us, which I know none of us wants to miss. Father, we are so thankful that you do care about our donkeys in life, Lord, that there is nothing in our life that doesn't concern you, that when we weep, you weep. When we rejoice, you rejoice. I pray, Father, that this... Knowledge would just cause us to draw closer to you, Lord, and live in the confidence and the comfort of knowing that you truly are for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That's these things in Christ's name. Amen.